when you were Swiss years ago back in the country. Yeah. And you were. Begin. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, this is a panel discussion of the new Internet Treaty. Is it good for writers? And we have a very uh, distinguished panel here tonight. My name is, I don't include myself within the panel. I'm the moderator. My name is James Goodale. I'm a lawyer at Debevoise and Plimpton. I've followed uh, copyright and related issues for many years. And I must say there's no more exciting issue than uh, the issue of copyright in the age of um, the digital society. So I'm pleased to be the moderator. More pleased to introduce on my left Michael Kiplinger, who's at the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and who's had a distinguished career uh, in the copyright field for many, many years, including being counsel to CONTU, which was the National Commission to the New Technological Uses of Copyright Works. We may remember that uh, in uh, as part of our history with respect to amending uh, copyright acts. Uh, he was uh, advisor to the recent conference uh, in Geneva about which we will uh, spend some time and I'm very pleased to welcome him to our panel. His role tonight is to tell us what happened in Geneva, in short, uh, to tell us about the new internet uh, treaty. And on his left is Jane Ginsburg, uh, who is a well-known copyright uh, specialist, academician at the Columbia University School of Law, where she has been uh, since 1987. Uh, before that, uh, she was a Fulbright Scholar and practiced law here in New York with the Cowan Leibowitz firm. We're very pleased to have her on the panel. I'm thumbing through the list of articles that she's written on copyright, and she probably is one of the most published uh, copyright uh, writers in the uh, country. And she will comment on Mr. Kiplinger's uh, presentation. And uh, lastly, uh, I want to introduce a Monroe Price, who is a well-known uh, communications lawyer, if I may uh, call him that. He has been the dean of uh, Cardozo Law School in his youth, and uh, he's presently a professor there and uh, heads the uh, communications program at uh, Cardozo. He will also be a commentator, and I will try to be a moderator, and we, of course we'll be interested in the comments uh, that you may have. So without further ado, Mr. Kiplinger, could you come in? Well, thank you very much. It's uh, always a pleasure to be associated with such a distinguished group. I know when I was in law school, I would have never thought I'd be on the same podium with such distinguished professors and deans of law schools. Uh, but I would like to spend a few minutes to talk with you about what this new treaty is and what the process is, how the treaty came about, what the government hoped it would do, and how it fits into this administration's concerns about encouraging the growth of the national and global information infrastructure or the information superhighways. Uh, I don't know how many of you are lawyers, but maybe we'll take a minute to talk just a little bit about what uh, 
international copyright is and what it isn't, uh, and what the organizations are, so you'll have a little bit better understanding of uh, the framework in which all of this debate takes place. The World Intellectual Property Organization is a specialized UN agency that's responsible for the administration of the international intellectual property treaties that deal with matters concerning patents, copyrights, and trademarks, and other intellectual property matters about plant variety protection and, and semiconductor chip protection and various other issues. Um, and as such, as custodians of these treaties, they're responsible for uh, helping to see to it that the treaties stay up to date. The international copyright treaties are principally the Berne Convention for the Protection of Literary and Artistic Works, which is a convention that's over 100 years old and links together over 120 of the countries of the world into a union in which its members agree to respect and protect copyrighted works originating in other member countries on certain terms and conditions that are spelled out in rather great detail in the Berne Convention and have provided a very high level of protection for copyrighted works, the works of authors and other creators throughout the world. Uh, that organization, WIPO, also administers along with the International Labor Organization and UNESCO, uh, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, another important treaty called the Rome Convention or the International Convention for the Protection of Performers and Producers of Phonograms. That convention isn't nearly so old. It only goes back to 1971. But uh, it's also an important convention. The membership in that convention is much smaller. Uh, only about, I believe, about uh, 50 members. Um, <clears throat> but both of those treaties, as you can see from their dates, were last revised and last brought up to date in the era when new technology meant photocopying machines and VCRs were a glimmer on the horizon and computers meant monstrous things that occupied the entire basement of a research institution and were used for such exotic things as nuclear bomb calculations and calculating trajectories for uh, artillery weapons and things like that. It predated the information revolution. And there's been a lot of concern expressed in recent years that the international copyright treaties and treaties related to what the Europeans call neighboring rights needed to be updated to take into account developments in the information era, in the information age. The, some of those developments had already been taken into account in recent negotiations that I'm sure you have heard something about called the uh, negotiations on the trade-related aspects of intellectual property in the last round, big round of trade negotiations that took place that cemented into copyright law some important things for the information age that copyright protection applies to computer programs, that computer databases are protected by copyright law, and that certain other 
obligations exist to provide for countries to provide legal remedies for authors to enforce their rights around the world. Well, those were important developments, but they only went a small step towards addressing the concerns about how should copyright and neighboring rights be protected in the information age. Now, I've used another term that I should explain very briefly, and that's neighboring rights. Under the U.S. copyright system, the interests of authors are protected under copyright, the interests of Producers of sound recordings, sound recording companies, are protected under copyright. And the interests of performers, to a large extent, are protected under copyright as well. Um, however, in European countries, the basic theory of copyright law is rather different. It's really called author's rights law in European legal systems. And those rights extend really only to natural people who are authors of works. They don't extend to a record production company. Uh, so those rights, those related rights or neighboring rights that neighbor closely on copyright in the sense that they require the same kind of protection in the marketplace uh, because of legal theoretical reasons are protected under a different system of laws and generally at a lower level of protection than copyright. A shorter term of protection, lesser scope of rights and the like. Uh, because of that, uh, back in December, when the World Intellectual Property Organization convened a diplomatic conference to negotiate an update of the international copyright system, in part and in large part, to take into account the changes in patterns of distribution for copyrighted works and methods of utilization for copyrighted works, um, that are brought about by the information age, uh, there had to be two treaties negotiated, one to cover the area of copyright and one to cover the area of neighboring rights. I won't talk much about the neighboring rights treaty because I don't think that's of the one that's of principal interest to you, but I will talk more about the copyright treaty because it's the one that fundamentally is intended to bring up to date the rights for the protection of authors that are guaranteed in the Berne Convention. Let me give you a little bit of background, too, on the administration's interest in this. Uh, I mean, I always feel like I'm in the position of the uh, old joke about a person who says, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Well, I think in this instance there was a real attempt by the government to try to uh, help the creative community. Uh, within the administration, uh, there has been a sincere effort, I think, to try to encourage the growth of the national information infrastructure, to provide the legal and regulatory framework necessary to encourage the use of the Internet as something more than just a mechanism for email, but to encourage its development as a mechanism for commerce and for communication of information and entertainment products and the enrichment of our economy the creation of jobs, and the promotion of the creative community. Um, because of that, the administration launched an effort to look at our own copyright law to try to determine what needed to be done to our copyright law to bring it into step with the information age. And in that process, 
my boss, Bruce Lehman, who is the Commissioner of Patents and Trademarks, uh, was designated to be the head of a committee to develop a report on copyright in the national information infrastructure. That process resulted in a report which recommended some rather modest amendments to the U.S. copyright law to bring it into, into full step with the information age and to ensure that the rights of authors and other copyright owners would be fully protected in the Internet so that your works wouldn't be subject to unauthorized downloading and uses without your consent. Uh, because we believe that that was very essential to developing this new and what we perceive to be a very vital area of commerce, electronic commerce in works of the mind. Concomitant with our attempts to ensure the modernization of our own copyright law and the recommendations that we made were rather modest ones, although they did engender a lot of controversy, uh, we determined that the process that had been ongoing in WIPO to look at updating the international conventions should be redirected to focus on these same issues because it's very clear that if you look at the growth of the Internet and if you're a user of the Internet, you know that you can reach virtually every country in the world through the Internet, that you can post works on bulletin boards and make them available for downloading almost everywhere in the world creating both a potential for a tremendous marketplace for copyrighted works and greatly expanded new means of exploitation for authors and copyright owners, but also vastly increased threats to your ability to earn royalties for the use of your works and for publishers and those with whom you have relations to be able to economically exploit the works in the world. Well, we felt that there was a need to update the international treaties to do that, and we pushed very hard to accelerate the work that was ongoing in WIPO to address the needs of the creative community for protection in this, in this atmosphere. And to that end, we had from December 2 to 20 in Geneva at the headquarters of WIPO a diplomatic conference on... <clears throat> certain copyright and neighboring rights questions, which were really the questions as what is needed to update copyright law to bring it in, in touch with the digital age, and what are the other copyright issues, the more traditional issues, that need to be harmonized among countries to encourage the continuing growth in the market for copyrighted works around the world and to ensure protection for authors. This was not an easy process. It required a lot of talking and a lot of, um, a lot of trying to convince other countries around the world that this Internet issue was real and that it was uh, something that needed to be addressed. Our concern was that we should work towards the establishment of international standards that would be compatible with the U.S. copyright law and the copyright law of other developed countries that have already functioning electronic marketplaces and require other countries of the world to come up to those standards. Uh, we think we were very successful in that effort. 
The treaties in w that were being discussed in WIPO, a so-called protocol to the Berne Convention to update it, and a new instrument on the protection of performers and producers of sound recordings have been languishing for years. Bogged down in traditional disputes between Europe and the United States largely and other common law countries over the degree and extent of authors' moral rights and over the rights of performers and other rather technical copyright issues, leaving some of the important issues that affect your economic interests not adequately dealt with. Um, so we pushed very hard to accelerate the work in WIPO and to redirect it towards this new focus. And we, as I say, we were successful. We had a diplomatic conference in Geneva which resulted in the adoption of two new treaties. We had hoped there would be three new treaties, but we wound up with only two. We had hoped there would be a treaty on copyright to improve the protection for authors and copyright owners, a treaty that would improve protection for performers, all performers, and producers of phonograms, and we hoped that there would be a treaty to provide additional protection for the producers of databases. We achieved success, I believe, fully on the WIPO Copyright Treaty to improve the situation for authors in the electronic media. And we achieved largely very positive success in respect of improving the level of protection for authors and performers, I mean for performers and producers of phonograms related to performances who are fixed in phonograms, but the treaty failed to address the issue of audiovisual performers, and we were not able to get to, the, to the, any discussion of the treaty on database protection. And that's true for a number of reasons. Uh, I could regale you with stories about what a nightmare this diplomatic conference was, but let me just say that we had three weeks to discuss three treaties. We spent more than half of the time uh, over the first week and a half deciding on who would be on what committees, who would sit in the front of the room, who would be the president, who would be the, the membership of the various committees, and how everything would work. And we were left to the final roughly 10 days to negotiate all three treaties. Well, there was no way we could do that. So we focused on the, treat, the two treaties that were of the primary importance, the uh, Copyright Treaty and the new Neighboring Rights Treaty. And we did achieve success. We got two new treaties that I think generally improve protection for authors and performers throughout the world. Two treaties that contain common provisions that I think are beneficial to uh, authors and to users of copyrighted works as well. And we did, to a certain extent, advance the discussion with respect to audiovisual performers and databases. Let me tell you a little bit about what some of the provisions are that are common to both of the treaties. Both of the treaties contain provisions that would require members of the treaties to have in their laws strong provisions to protect authors' rights and to provide legal remedies in their judicial systems for protecting those rights. They also contain provisions 
that would require the protection of so-called rights management information. That is, when the technology develops to a point where you could put out your work on the internet and attach to it terms and conditions of use, the identification of the work, its association with you as the author, that there would be a legal obligation on members of these treaties to provide legal protection to ensure that that data is protected, protected against deletion, protected against tampering, and in general, to ensure its integrity, that that information would stay with the work, and that electronic systems that would be intended to help you manage the use of your works as they flow through this immense web of international electronic commerce would be protected. There are also provisions that would require countries to provide for sanctions against those who would circumvent electronic protection systems like encryption or electronic signatures or enveloping or other technological means that might be employed to protect works against unauthorized use in this world of electronic commerce. There are also provisions that deal um, with rights that are specific to each of the treaties. And let me talk a little bit about what the copyright treaty would provide. One of the most important rights it would provide that are relevant to the internet, although those words are never used in the treaty, is the right it would guarantee to authors and copyright owners the right to make available their works to the public through on-demand systems. So that if you wish to license the use of your work for distribution by electronic means, every country that joins this treaty will have to guarantee that right to you. Uh, offers a lot of flexibility to countries in the precise way in which they would have to implement that right, whether they would implement it through a right of communication to the public, through a reproduction right, or through a right of distribution or some combination of the three is left up to the individual countries to determine. Uh, but it's very clear that that right must be guaranteed. It would also provide for the first time in an international treaty a general right for authors and copyright owners to be able to authorize or prohibit the distribution of their works, a guaranteeing a distribution right. It would also guarantee a right for authors of certain works, computer programs, motion pictures, and sound recordings to authorize or prohibit and musical works included in sound recordings to authorize or prohibit the rental of their works to the public. <clears throat> it would also include, for the first time in an international treaty, a general provision that is equally of importance to users and to authors, and that's to guarantee a general equivalent of the U.S. right of fair use. Presently, the international treaties contain a right of fair use only in respect to the reproduction right. But that's not necessarily sufficient in the electronic world. 
where you can infringe other rights than the reproduction right very easily. Um, so we felt it was very important that these treaties confirm the ability to maintain and extend into the digital era fair use rights, but fair use rights that did not interfere with the normal exploitation of the copyrighted works or unreasonably impair the rights of the author. And those rights in these treaties are to be applied to the exercise of rights that already exist under the Berne Convention as well as with respect to the rights under the new treaties. So I think these treaties, all in all, have a very balanced approach to guaranteeing good levels of protection for authors' works as they flow through the world of electronic commerce, but also recognizing the realities of the uses that have to be made, and also taking into account the technological measures. So all in all, we think in the government that we came back with a good package that ought to encourage broad general support for the adoption of these treaties by uh, the U.S. We don't think that much amendment to our law is required to implement these treaties in the U.S. We don't need to change any of the rights in our copyright law. We need to add these treaties to the list of treaties that are entitled to protection under our copyright law, and we need to implement the provisions dealing with technological protection measures and the protection of copyright management information. And we are working hard within the administration and with the Copyright Office to put together the legislative package that we hope to forward to Capitol Hill through the President within the next few months to provide for U.S. adherence to these treaties that we think will encourage the growth of the Internet and help protect authors' rights and the rights of users worldwide. Thank you very much. Ms. Ginsburg, would you care to comment? Um, yes. Uh, Get close to the microphone, though. Actually, if I could, um, given the intimacy of the gathering, what I'd like to do is, is move forward. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought about I that. To, I'm not I think, sure. Are they recording this? Well, recording. Do, do, we, do we have to have the microphone? I'll take my microphone with me. Ah, there we go. Show. Into the I'm audience with the microphone. I'm not a very microphone. good rock star. Into the audience with the microphone. Very good. Okay. I actually, I don't do this in my class. I don't go up and down on the aisles. But uh, it seemed to me that, that uh, this is about the, the gathering of a seminar, so I wanted to try to treat it that, that way. Uh, I also wanted to disclose, this being a small world, that the, uh, when I started teaching at uh, Columbia Law School, one of the first people I asked to come and talk to my students was Mike Keplinger to talk about international copyright issues. And actually, before I got to Columbia Law School, the very first place I started teaching copyright was at Cardozo, where Monroe Price was dean. So you see, this is old home week. Um, Okay, I think my assignment is to talk about this treaty and uh, what it means for authors and, and why it's a good thing for, for authors. And what I'd like to do is uh, divide it into some of the broader international issues that Mike Kemplinger also talked about, and then the specific issues around the so-called digital agenda. Uh, as Mike indicated, um, the Berne Convention, which is the major multilateral copyright treaty with over 100 members, had not been updated since 1971. Uh, and that was a long time, not only chronologically, but also technologically. Um, and so there was uh, 
considerable concern that, that we needed to bring it into the uh, into the edge of the 21st century, never mind bridges to the 21st century. Um, and the, a number of aspects of the uh, WIPO treaty that was just negotiated are not digital specific. Uh, rather, they harmonize a number of rights in the Berne Convention that had been um, somewhat uh, spotty in their coverage and that uh, for example, the idea of the public, what we call in the United States copyright, the public performance right, that is the right to perform the work publicly, either live before an audience or over television, on cable, satellite, uh, through computer networks, etc., cetera, um, had not been conceptualized in, a, in an abstract general way. It, it rather, it had been identified with respect to certain kinds of exploitations, and there was no uh, overarching concept of public performance. So one of the achievements of the WIPO treaty is to enunciate what it calls a right of communication to the public, which is not technology specific and which applies to the making available of works to the public, whether the members of the public are in the same place at the same time or at different places at different times, which is somewhat similar to what our statute says. Now, what does that mean? Um, in a lot of countries, the idea of a public performance was limited to everybody being in the same place at the same time. So a live performance, of course, or a broadcast performance could be considered a public performance because it was all happening at the same time. But the so-called celestial jukebox, or for that matter, pay-per-view, would not have been a public performance because different people would have been receiving the work at the same time. So that was an important gap, excuse me, at different times. So that was an important gap in the Berne Convention system. So the um, treaty that has just come out of Geneva uh, makes a difference not only in the digital context, but also for more conventional sorts of public performances like pay-per-view. Hmm? Um, another uh, important right that was um, put into the new convention, which is not digital specific, is the distribution right that Mike Keplinger also re referred to. And uh, this is the right to distribute the work in copies. It's also known as the first publication right in the United States. And it was sort of implicit in the right to um, reproduce the work. But it does make a difference to enunciate specifically, let, let me give you an example. Let's say that you have um, a warehouse in the notorious state of Rhode Island where there are a lot of pirate records, or CDs, excuse me, I'm showing my old technology origins, CDs uh, stocked up in this warehouse in Rhode Island. The uh, fellow who's got the warehouse who's going to sell these CDs on street corners um, did not himself reproduce the records. So he hasn't violated the reproduction right, but he's certainly violating the distribution right in selling these, these records that are pirate records. So the ability to reach the uh, intermediary between the pirate that's making the copies and the pirates that's selling the copies is reached by the distribution right. So that was also not digital specific, but an important general right to recognize on a worldwide basis in this treaty. Um, one other uh, detail of perhaps some interest is that uh, in a number of countries, and indeed under the older version of the Berne Convention, photographs were second-class citizens. 
in that some countries thought that photographs weren't really works of authorship because there's this mechanical intervention, it's not, it's not real art. Uh, and so they got a shorter term of protection where works, real works of authorship are protected for the life of the author plus 50 years. The Berne Convention permitted member states to protect photographs for only 25 years from publication. It's a very significantly shorter duration. Um, and for some photographs that don't really get a following until later, this is quite significant compared with a literary work or other kinds of artistic or musical works. So another non-digital thing that the new uh, WIPO treaty does is treat photographs like other works of authorship and require member states to give them the same duration of protection, which is life plus 50. So that's kind of the broader context of why this treaty is important to harmonize copyright laws around the world independently of the digital question. Now let's turn to the digital question. Um, there's been a, a lot of noise, some of it a little um, misleading about what the digital agenda is. Uh, as Mike Keblinger indicated, the treaty that came out of Geneva requires um, virtually no change to the United States copyright law and explicitly no change to the substantive norms under United States copyright law. What that means is that with or without this treaty, as a matter of law today, uh, if somebody puts your work up on the internet without your permission, that's a violation of copyright. I don't know how many of you have had the experience that I recently had at a, the annual conference of law professors, which is surrealistic, put 2,000 law professors in one hotel, and you get the American Association of Law Professors annual conference. And somebody came up to me and said, you know, I really enjoyed reading your most recent article on the web. I said, well, who put it there? Um, perhaps you've had this experience as well. Well, who put it there? was not with my permission, and that is a copyright violation. Whether you want to enforce your copyright is a different issue, but you do have the right currently under United States copyright law to object to uh, people doing things like that with your work, and the WIPO treaty does not make a difference to that uh, substantive legal standard. What the WIPO treaty does is give enforcement bite to the legal rights that you already have, through two provisions that we would have to enact into our law, and Mike Keplinger referred to both of them. One of them is the uh, copyright management information provision, and the other is the provision regarding circumvention of technical measures. Um, so I think, now I'll do this like a seminar, you, you all have this text, right? the, uh, the WIPO Copyright Treaty. So what I'd like to do is take a look at Article 12. Um, if you don't have a copy, look on with your neighbor. Um, so we can understand just what this text requires signatory countries to do and why this is a good thing for authors. Um, the text provides that contracting parties are supposed to provide adequate and effective legal remedies. That's a term of art meaning meaningful protection against anybody who knowingly, not accidentally, but knowingly uh, performs uh, any of the following acts. What are they? Right? Removing or altering electronic rights management information without authority or distributing 
or otherwise disseminating copies of the work from which this management information has been removed. What's, what I want to concentrate on is part two, the definition of rights management information. Every uh, country that ratifies this treaty is uh, signing on to the following. Um, the information, which nobody has to put on their, on their works, but if they want to put on their works, uh, they have to put on information that identifies the work, you know, the great American novel, the author of the work right, by Jane Ginsburg, um, the owner of any right in the work, if, for example, I have assigned my copyright or licensed my copyright to a publisher, Columbia University Press, uh, or information about the terms and conditions of use of the work. So, for example, if I'm interested in disseminating this work on the Internet, I might say browsing is free. Anybody can browse, but if you want to download a permanent copy, I want to be paid. Or um, you're welcome to print out a copy and, and, and give a copy, a hard copy to a friend, but I don't want you disseminating digital copies because it's very easy to make more and more and more copies of digital copies. I can dictate the terms of the further use of my work and every copy of my work has to bear these terms so that everybody knows what the rules of the game are. And to alter this information would be a violation of the legal requirement on copyright management information. One of the really interesting things that perhaps you didn't know about copyright management information is that it's one of the only places in the copyright law that requires recognition of the author of the work. Um, you might think that copyright has something to do with authorship attribution or credit. I wrote this work, it's mine, everybody should know, my name belongs on it. Actually, apart from a very limited context regarding works of visual art, painting, sculpture, there is zero right in the Federal Copyright Act to be credited as the author of a work. You can get money for the exploitation of the work, prevent other people from exploiting the work. There's nothing in the Copyright Act about being recognized as the author of the work. So one of the very interesting and I think quite important things about rights management information is if you put this work in, this information in, that means that you're putting in information about who is the author of the work and that information cannot be deleted from the work as it circulates around the internet. Uh, so I think that's something of, of uh, considerable significance. Uh, similarly, the idea of rights management information is to ensure that what's out there is authentic. And uh, although the um, provision talks about altering the rights management information, I would think that if you alter the work to which the rights management information corresponds, you are, in effect, giving false rights management information. I mean, if I write the great American novel and I disseminate it, and somebody decides that the great American novel would be greater if they took out three chapters, and then they redisseminate it with the three chapters, with all the information about I'm the author and here are the terms and conditions, that's a misrepresentation. That's not my novel anymore. That's my novel is somebody else chopped it up. And I think that one could say that that is a violation of the rights management information requirement if you're purveying a work that's not authentic anymore. Right now in the Copyright Act, there's just about nothing about authenticity. So an important addition to the Copyright Act would be this provision that gives authorship credit and some guarantee of author authenticity. The last thing I want to address 
with respect to the digital agenda is Article 11 on the previous page of your document, obligations concerning technological measures. Now, what this is about uh, is the concern that today you, something goes out on the internet, you can say goodbye uh, because there's really no effective technological way of stopping people from making further copies. And there's been stuff in the popular press about uh, the, the author, I forget if it was of, of uh, Dilbert or Garfield or a popular strip, uh, who was, did not feel honored by the fact that lots of people were uploading copies of his cartoon characters and circulating all, them all over the place. His position was, I make a living from this, and if you do this, you are uh, damaging my ability to make a living, so please don't do it. But at the best he could do was make a moral appeal because uh, there was, there's, there's not any really effective way uh, to stop people from doing this, even if you have a legal right to stop people from doing this, who are you going to sue? You can't sue the individuals who think they're doing you a favor by putting yourself up on the internet. It's impractical, they can't satisfy a judgment, it's hard to find them, etc. cetera. Uh, so it would be better if there was some other way to stop this, and other ways to stop this include encryption and other technological measures. That's so far so good. The only problem is that there are clever people out there who would love to devote their lives to undoing the technological measures that you put on to protect your work. And so we go on in a never-ending spiral of protection, anti-protection, and so on. The idea of Article 11 is to stop that spiral and provide that if you choose, you don't have to, but if you choose to uh, disseminate your work with technological measures against copying, it is a violation of the copyright law to undo those technological measures, or for that matter, to sell a wonderful machine or a descrambler that will undo it, or to offer services, I come to your house and I fix your computer so that it will descramble, whatever. All those kinds of products and services would um, violate the Copyright Act if um, this provision, uh, if we um, ratified the treaty and implemented um, a similar provision in our copyright law. And a lot of people think that the internet is not going to be an effective means to disseminate anything other than self-promotion unless uh, people who create works of value have some confidence that they can be paid for the work, that the work will be their work and not something that was changed, they'll get credit from the work, and all the rest. So Article 11 and Article 12 of the WIPO Treaty address those concerns, and uh, that's what, if we ratify this treaty, we would need to incorporate into our law, and it's why I think it's a good idea that we incorporate these measures into our law. Monroe, it's yours. Um. Well, um, I want to uh, disclaim uh, the kind of technical facility that uh, Professor Green, uh, Ginsburg and Mr. Keplinger have, uh, but I want to talk a little bit about uh, the context of in which this treaty was negotiated. And I think I'd like to say that um, this was a hotly contested treaty. The, the, the picture that comes through here is reasonable efforts by the government. Uh, we went to 
Geneva, we spent a lot of time dealing with the question of who should be the president. There wasn't time to get to the database treaty. We got a reasonable treaty. We came home with a lot of what we wanted, et cetera, et cetera. As a writer, not as a law professor dealing with copyright, as a journalist, as it were, looking at this question, I get a totally different picture. I get a picture of the government having had, and this is partly taken from very passionate law professors and others who think this, the entire picture should be seen quite differently. And that would be that um, the, the government's position, partly um, reflecting large interest groups in the United States, particularly Hollywood, um, sought an agenda in Congress, which they weren't able to achieve, took the agenda to Geneva, and were defeated in Geneva as well. Came back with a treaty, but a treaty that's quite reasonable, but one that reflects modest gains and, and gains that are perfectly satisfactory. But what is, is not said, and, and then may want to go back to Congress and try to get, based on WIPO, what they failed to get before. So I think, I, I don't know whether this is necessarily true or not, but I, I, I just want to represent that rather than this being a picture of reason, there are people jumping up and down about this treaty. There are people angry. There are people, not the treaty. Treaty people are not angry about, but the process in some way. There are lobbyists who've spent millions, hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to get one result or another, or just, there are groups who, who uh, interest groups who had very strong positions on one issue or another. One that I'd like to raise and perhaps ask you about uh, is the database treaty itself. And, and as it's represented, this is a kind of neutral question. Um, well, I think it's of interest to authors because it goes to, I think, a, a very famous Supreme Court case called Feist and the question of what should be protected in a database. Should it be the database itself or should there be some invasion of the idea that, that certain kinds of facts ought to be protected because of the effort put into collecting them and assembling them. And this is something important to authors. Authors want to have access to information, to facts, to things that at present are not protected. They may be contained in things called databases, but they're not protected as a database. And as I understand it, the European Union has somewhat protected this, but in a way that's greater than the U.S. level. And the question was, should we be in harmony with the European position? So uh, the question of whether the database treaty would be adopted or not was not an issue of time. Where there's a flashing red light outside, is this? It's I see. This is Pam Pam Samuelson and Jerry Reichman are coming or something like that. So anyway, the, the sense I get is the database treaty was not dropped because there just wasn't time. God, we, we, we tried to get three treaties, and we only got two, and boy, are we happy we got two. The U.S. position was, was defeated by lobbying and by a bunch of other things that said, we don't want this treaty. Now, it may be that the treaty is now going to be revived and reconsidered, et cetera, but I think it's unfair to represent it as we, don't have, we, we just ran out of time. Um, the other thing is I think that there's a... Used. Is this updating? Is this harmonizing? What are we doing here? Is this 
there's a kind, and, and here are the kind of alternative ways of saying it. We, we have a perfectly wonderful copyright system. And all of a sudden, the internet comes along, and the question is, how do we get back, how do we get to the same kind of copyright system we had before? That is to say, whatever we, we had, we now have to sort of fix or tweak so that the internet is, or digital distribution is taken care of. This would be the kinds of questions like uh, the distribution right or the public right, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. The, uh, another way of saying it is, we're not going to take a, a judgment about what the current copyright system is, but it is the status quo, and we're not trying to disturb the status quo, we're trying to re-establish it. But aside from that, I think there are two other ways of looking at it. One is, there's really something wrong with the current copyright system. Uh, it doesn't adequately protect intellectual property as a source of um, um, trade benefits to the United States, for example. That is to say, we need to make intellectual property more like other kinds of property, more perpetual, for example, longer terms, uh, maybe no terms, just, you know, forever. Um, we need to eliminate fair use or, or modify fair use, not, not eliminate it, but we need to to constrain it in some way, because these are valuable rights, and our country's trade balance increasingly depends on these these rights. Um, on the other side, there's a view that um, the internet is this is a great new way of defining democracy. That, that is, to say uh, we should we should revise the copyright laws, not because. Um, the, we were, we're trying to get back to some perfect past, but we have an opportunity for a better future. That is to say, there's, if, we, if we could rethink this in terms of our own sense of access as readers, not necessarily as writers, um, foundation for democracy, et cetera, et cetera, maybe we would, we would expand fair use rights. Maybe we would not have as, as much protection for work on, on, um, on the internet as, as we do for written works. At least there's, there's the question is, should we have a discussion about this? Uh, and it's, it's the view of some authors, uh, and uh, I'm not sure I'm associating myself with them, but I'm just sort of reporting that these, these authors exist. The copyright law is made by a, a interest groups that are not necessarily representative of all these views. That is to say that the people who are generally around the table are... Um, the, are, the, are the large producers of uh, content providers, as the term is now used, perhaps the service providers and the telcos, but, but maybe uh, in, in some cases those are proxies for uh, ordinary citizens, and, and in some cases they aren't. But the, the question is, how do you debate this in a way that, that opens up the environment for, for uh, greater discussion? Um, there are a couple of other uh, ways of looking at this I just want to bring out for, for discussion. One is that, uh, and, and it's sort of interesting in, in light of uh, Professor Ginsburg's last discussions about um, enforcement. The, the, it seems to me that one really interesting question, one debate, is about whether law is useless or has a future at all. That is to say, one view is that, um, 
that there that the kind of law enforcement that's necessary to uh, bring to heel the kind of massive uses that are possible on the internet are inconsistent with life as we know it and love it. I'm not sure I agree with this view, but I'm going to state it anyway. And that is, and so, so that in, in the modern era, in the, in the postmodern era, I guess, um, national regulation is, is, is increasingly uh, impossible to achieve. And that the kinds of things that, that, that are really trying, that you're trying to do here in the treaty are hard to accomplish. That is to say that law has less and less vitality. That maybe contract or other methods of achieving these objectives will, will be the only way or encryption. And the, I realize that some of these efforts are designed in a way to say that, that you can only do this by contract. And the question is how do you make contracts effective rather than how do you make legal standards of copyright effective. So it's not copyright that will be the standard, but contract that will be the standard, as it were. Um, the, other, the other view, and another kind of view that I'd like to articulate, is that the, um, what's, what's occurring is a kind of corporatization of information, that this isn't about author's rights in the way that maybe me members of Penn would think of it, but these are our, our corporate rights, and that the effect of lobbying, the the, uh, the way in which these rights are being sort of redefined and articulated, are are done in a way that affect the larger collectors of and exploiters of information in ways that might be uh, adverse to to ordinary authors, whatever that means, and ordinary citizens, whatever that means. Um, so, um, I guess uh, the questions that I'd, I'd like to ask, perhaps, are to have both of you comment on how these issues played through the fair use debate. I mean, if you, if you take a look at, the, at Article 10, for example, um, and, and this is the article that came out. I, I, don't, I, I don't actually understand the difference between the article as it came out and the articles that was proposed. Um, some people think it changed. I don't know whether it changed or not. Um, the question is whether, um, the, and of course language here is really important. It's really interesting in terms of, uh, from, a, from a writer's point of view or, or a reader's point of view, it would be hard to understand that this is about fair use. I think it is the part that's about fair use, isn't it? Um, so the question is, are the fair use laws in the US currently, um, as it's interpreted, do they conflict with the normal exploitation of the work and do not unreasonably prejudice the legitimate interest of the author? In other words, are these additional standards and how do we know whether they are or not? That is, a, if I'm, a, if I'm a, a, a person interpreting this, 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 may, this may be a reference to incorporate uh, American law as the standard, but it may possibly uh, be interpreted in the future as a, as a greater restriction of fair use, and that may affect some writers. So I'll stop with those as sort of comments and questions. Well, let me, let me uh, uh, provide a slight focus, but the respondents can respond any place, any way they want to. Um, and Rose, 
raised uh, a series of points, some particular, some general. The particular ones I'm particularly interested in, and, and uh, that is his journalistic view of what happened. And uh, that is sort of the title of this uh, symposium, is the new internet, uh, the new internet treaty, is it good for writers? He suggests in his journalistic comment that maybe it isn't as good for those who had an interest in it, and some of them may have been writers, as you two earlier said, because a lot of people went away disappointed not getting in Geneva what apparently they never got in Congress, and apparently they're going to go back to Congress. I'm particularly interested in that. And then Monroe raises some general points as to the impact and effectiveness of copyright laws uh, in general and uh, some of the uh, impact of that and the particular characteristics of this um, treaty. You can too can respond any way you want, but I must say, as someone who's represented journalists, I'm interested in the journalistic comment he first made. Mike, why don't you go first? Well, uh, in response to those who say this was simply an attempt by the administration to achieve in Geneva what it had been unable to achieve in domestic legislation, uh, I think that what, what I've said earlier um, about what changes are necessary to U.S. law absolutely uh, flies in the face of that. What we went to Geneva trying to achieve uh, was a clarification of law, and that's what we tried to achieve in the legislation, the so-called NII copyright amendments that were proposed in the U.S. Congress. Those amendments failed not because, really, of major debates about the recommendations we proposed in the copyright law, uh, but rather over a totally unrelated issue. And that the reason that really blocked serious consideration of the amendments was the debate over the extent of liability for so-called online service providers. I mean, what should be the liability of a telephone company or a America Online type corporation that makes available works to the public if that making available perhaps through no direct action of their own, results in an infringement of a copyright owner's rights? What should be their liability for the extent of contributory or vicarious infringement liability? That's what stalled the legislation. But, but did you try to get that in Geneva? And that issue was never addressed in Geneva. Was the telecoms one? The telecom companies wanted it to be addressed. There was an attempt to put it on the floor but all attempts to put that issue on the floor were rejected. And it was very clear from the discussion that nothing in this treaty affects one way or the other the ability of a country to deal with questions of the extent of liability for copyright infringement as opposed to what constitutes copyright infringement under its own law. So we are perfectly free to deal with the issue of the liability for infringement of online service providers or internet access service providers in our own law, and so is every other country in the world. So that, I think that's an unfair criticism. Uh, the criticism about the database treaty, um, when I passed it off as simply not being able to get to it, uh, that's true. We couldn't get to it. Had we gotten to it, 
uh, the discussion would have been difficult. It was a new issue. It arises from a directive that the European Union has proposed to provide protection for collections of information and to provide protection for the investment in the collection of information, so long as that investment is substantial. Uh, there have been attempts to uh, <clears throat> address that issue here in the Congress. Um, without going into a long debate about copyright law, uh, we had a 70-year tradition under the copyright law of protecting investment in putting together compilations and copyright. Uh, the mere effort that someone put forth in assembling and compiling something like the white pages of a phone book was deemed to be a basis for determining copyright protection. The case that uh, Professor Price mentioned, uh, Feist versus Rural Telephone, in that case the Supreme Court said that's not the basis for copyright protection. Didn't say Congress couldn't protect it, just said it's not a basis for copyright. This treaty was an attempt to try to come to some international agreement over what would be standards for protection for this kind of substantial investment in putting together copyright or in putting together a database that didn't rise to the level of copyrightability. Um, something that may prove to be very important in the internet, but certainly an issue that we now know requires substantially more discussion here in the United States between all of the involved stakeholders, those concerned with fair use, those concerned with the use of directory type information, and those concerned with its production, as well as the library community. And that debate has to be repeated in other countries around the world. We're going to a meeting next week in Geneva where we hope to try to lay out plans in WIPO for a rational way to develop that discussion and to encourage and carry forward the discussion in WIPO. Well, let me go to Ms. Ginsburg, but perhaps you comment on this. It would have been, from a writer's point of view, wouldn't it better if you were able to get liability for an OSP, an online service provider? Wouldn't that, I mean, if that, then you come back to Penn and say, look what we, look what we got every time America Online unknowingly publishes your work, they can be sued just the way any other book publisher. Wouldn't that have been, or is that just too much to ask? Uh, well, that wasn't, I don't think that was, was the issue. Um, I think um, Mike Hemlinger is right when he says the people who wanted that on the table were not the copyright owners. They were the online service providers who wanted to make sure they wouldn't uh, be liable. Um, let me try to explain why that's uh, a concern. The internet is somewhat different from previous exploitations of copyrighted works in that the end user is perhaps uniquely empowered to copy and recirculate material in a way and on a scale that simply wasn't present with previous new technologies such as tape recorders, videotape recorders, photocopy machines. I mean, yes, you could make a lot of copies of stuff and distribute hard copy, photocopies of stuff, but still, it was relatively restrained compared to what you can do on the internet with a 500 or 5,000 or 500,000 person mailing list, one button, and you forward somebody, somebody writes you something, you say, gee, this is interesting, I think I'll send it to my listserv, and bingo, you have with no effort just re-disseminated something that's a copyrighted work 
uh, and even putting it, even apart from copyrighted work, let's assume the person who sent it to you thought they were sending it to you as a friend in confidence, and it might be a bit of a surprise to discover that half the world now knows whatever it is that that person wrote you supposedly in, in confidence. It's um, the extraordinary convenience factor uh, of the internet and making it possible for absolutely everybody to make copies and disseminate them is, is I think, different. Uh, before that, the basic approach in copyright law was look for the intermediary who was the exploiter and the distributor, the book publisher. You don't go after readers, you go after the book publisher, the motion picture producer um, in the case of uh, public performances of music, for example. Uh, ASCAP and BMI, they don't go after the band, they go after the uh, hotel where the band is playing or the concert hall or the radio station. This is the intermediary who is easier to find and who has the economic stake in the exploitation of the work. The hotel is making more money off of the public performance of music than the band is making off of the public performance uh, of the music. Now, in the internet context, all of a sudden, that is shifted to the extent that the it's a little hard to find the intermediary. Hence, a uh, considerable temptation to find one where you can, which means the website operator, the online service provider, America Online, CompuServe, whoever gave you access to the internet, et cetera. Sometimes that intermediary is playing a role more um, consistent with a reminiscent of traditional intermediaries in the, in the entertainment uh, or the world of, of literary property, such as uh, somebody who's got a website on which they are organizing discussions or send me your pirate copies of video games. There are a lot of those websites out there, not to mention all the interesting photograph websites, et cetera. Right? Those people are mini publishers, right? and, but they are one, one level up from the ultimate user. And that's you might be interested in going after that person. What you're really interested in doing, if you're looking for who is effectively going to satisfy a judgment, put an end to this, and if possible, pay me some money, is the commercial entity. So it's not necessarily the internet cowboy who's got the pirate website for video games. It's America Online or CompuServe through whose network this renegade has managed to find a home. Uh, if that's true, it's not always true because it, you, don't, you don't have to go through America Online. You can just be out there on the web and then it's harder. But where you can find an intermediary, that's the person that you want to go after. And that's what's got the online service people very nervous because uh, they take the position sometimes, I think, factually persuasively and sometimes less factually persuasively that um, you know, nobody here but us wires, folks. Uh, I'm just transiting information. I don't have anything to do with this. You know, go after Joe Schmo, who's totally judgment-proof. He's the one who put that pirate video game up there. You know, see no evil, do no evil. And the, the authors whose works are out there who would like to stop this and would like to be com compensated are not totally persuaded by this position. Uh, so that's what... Um, that's what a lot of this debate is about. In legal terms, it has to do with what's called secondary or derivative liability. Because nobody's saying that America Online itself has put this stuff out there. 
right? But people are saying America Online has facilitated the putting it out there. And maybe they've done more than that. Maybe they have, when you get their initial screen, they have what's new, what's hot. And what's new and what's hot is that pirate site. Well, maybe they shouldn't be doing that. And other things that might make them slightly more connected to what's going on. Uh, in that case, the greater the involvement of the service provider with the infringement, the uh, more likely under traditional legal pr principles that you could find that person to be liable. Um, but obviously that's an uncomfortable position when you're the online per service provider and you are what's known as the only deep pocket around. You're the person that they want to come after because you're the only person with money. So you would like to get out of this. So you would like to effect a change in the legal standard of derivative liability so that you're out of the picture, leaving the author copyright owner against those other people who are the more direct infringers, certainly, but who may not be very useful to go running after. Well, Monroe, looks like, we'll, why don't we get Monroe a chance to respond and we'll ask, ask some questions from the audience. I'd, I'd like to hear the, I, mean, wanna, I just want to, I want to just get one response from you because they seem to disagree with your, your view now, for example, on the OSP point, the online service provider, they, they're saying they did pretty well because if they'd come back with a provision that exempted them from liability, that would have been really bad for authors, and at least they can fight about that in Congress, just as, just as right. one point. Well, because um, after all, we're trying to determine whether it's good or bad. Well, I, I guess on the OSP point, I'm not sure, again, I want to either defend the uh, online service providers or not. The question of what what we want in the shape of an online service provider, and is it a really important question which goes beyond sort of liability for copyright? For example, in, in the case that's being argued next week on the Communications Decency Act, the same kind of issue arose. To what extent do you want the online servers to be sensed? Do you want them to control the information and say, this, I'm sorry, this is obscene, I'm sorry, this is indecent? And there, Congress did provide some uh, uh, some uh, immunity, I'm not sure it's a very good immunity provision, but it is a, it is a kind of rollback in liability, although it may also impose liability. I, again, I, I think that's an important question, but both on the censorship side and on the copyright liability side, the question is, do you want to have the, on uh, America Online or CompuServe effectively police the internet and domesticate it? I guess this is another way of thinking about it. That is, are we in danger of, uh, of taking something which has been pretty unruly and has a lot of, of kind of uh, messiness to it and make it more like uh, historic broadcast television, more domesticated, more controlled, where there is a, a sort of large entity that ensures that, that we're back to gatekeepers. I mean, the thing that's, that's really been interesting is that we're in a, in a, in a mode where we government has lost or is in danger of losing uh, the kind of gatekeepers that they can call on the phone and say, stop this. Or same thing's true of, a copy, of an author, stop this. And we all want that. We want to be able to call somebody and say, stop this. I, I was reminded of the famous case of the, of the book about Mitterrand's uh, cancer, which was blocked by the publisher, probably through the intervention of the government, and somebody put the, the, the book on the, on the web or on the whatever they put it on. Now, this is terrible. This is an obvious infringement of copyright. There's no question about it. 
Uh, on the other hand, it's, it's pretty damned interesting uh, in terms of the way in which information flows in a society. I, I'm not saying which one is which, I'm just saying these are not technical legal questions. They're not something which are updates and harmonization and all of the kind of placid things that we're saying. They are really debates about a robust question of how we want the society to function. So I, I think that's basically what I'm saying. Yes. What do, you, what do you think the treaty should have said? Well, what, what, why, why can't we ask? Why can't we ask the question first? Can we ask the question first whether the treaty addressed uh, this question? The, the treaty does not address authorship, um, ownership of copyright. Um, all it does is say whoever owns the copyright um, has the following rights. Now, um, I, I hope that you'll go further than you went and give the website for your organization because the American Society of Journalists and Authors is doing really fantastic work in sensitizing authors to the fact that they don't have to lie down and take it when certain unnamed major um, periodicals say uh, in that contract that you signed long before anybody knew about e-rights, you transferred all rights and all media now known or later developed, or for that matter, who would now like to put down your throat a contract that says you know, all, all e-rights and you get a, a, um, a global sum and you don't ever come to me for, for royalties. A, a lot of publishers uh, 
will tell you, this is our standard form contract, take it or leave it. And one of the wonderful things that the American Society for Journalists and Authors uh, are doing on their website and on their listserv is regularly communicating to whoever signs, uh, gets the information that such and such a journal in fact has the A version, the B version, the C version, and you can negotiate and such and such uh, a publisher maybe you shouldn't deal with, but this one has been quite receptive to the efforts of, of authors not to take it. Um, that's one very um, important uh, effort of just sensitizing authors to the rights that they have, even though um, uh, their co-contractors might think that they don't. Uh, and the other, you want to put in the plug for the author's registry? The, the, the author's registry, which is a, a similar venture of many of the same people, is an attempt to be something like the ASCAP for freelance authors. That is, now you've got your e-rights, you've persuaded such and such a publisher that you didn't grant them. Well, that's very nice. Now, how are you going to administer them, um, especially on the kind of large-scale use that the Internet implies? Well, the idea of the author's registry is sort of one-stop shopping for those who would like to, with authorization, exploit uh, um, the freelance author's works in an electronic format and want to do it legally and want to pay for it, but don't want to have to worry about where am I going to find all these people. So the idea of the author's registry is you bring your works to them and they will license and they'll uh, indicate what royalty rate you want, they'll collect, they'll distribute. So it's, it's very similar to a principle like ASCAP um, or BMI. And uh, I think that that's absolutely as important as having the rights at law doesn't do you much good if you can't enforce them as a matter of business practice. Do we have other, do you have other comments or other questions from the audience? Yes. Yeah, your comment is a fair comment. Uh, this proposal engendered quite a bit of discussion in the U.S. scientific community, both among federal agencies responsible for scientific uh, research and in the academic and research communities as well. Uh, and it's fair to say that it has become a very controversial issue. Uh, it's also true that there were certain database companies, uh, those that are concerned with making use of things like the telephone directories that the Feist case said were uncopyrightable for putting together massive compilations of, of telephone uh, information that were concerned about the treaty. Uh, that's one of the reasons why uh, in this meeting next week the U.S. delegation is going to be working very hard to um, call for the convening of further committees of experts in WIPO to address this issue so that it will give us time here in our domestic policy-making context to thrash these issues out. Uh, I know the Information Industry Association is working with the Congress to reintroduce legislation 
along these lines in the Congress, and I know that there is a lot of concern in the library and academic community about those proposals. And uh, I think Congress will have to examine this issue carefully and before the administration goes any further in calling for a further diplomatic conference on this, this kind of an issue, we're going to have to have a much, much fuller discussion of these issues domestically and see how it plays out in Congress. Pardon me? I've just explained to you what the government position is. We're not going to... WIP, I didn't want to get into all the details, but WIPO had originally proposed a schedule of work for taking up the question of database protection, which could have led to the convening of a diplomatic conference very quickly to reconsider the database treaty proposal. The U.S. government has already expressed its uh, disagreement with that proposal to WIPO, and the position that we'll be working to achieve in Geneva next week is a much uh, more relaxed schedule with no definite schedule for the convening of a diplomatic conference, but rather the convening of a series of committees of experts to look at the questions, all of the questions involved, the need for such protection, its justification, how it would work, and then once those questions are answered, then we can think about the possibility of a, another diplomatic conference if it turns out to be warranted. Yes. Um, you don't have to put it on, but if you don't have to put on any copyright management information, but if you do, it should include the name of the author of the work. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure the text specifically responds to that. This is the sort of thing that the Copyright Office in uh, enacting regulations pursuant to a statute, if we have one, uh, would indicate what should the how should the term author be interpreted? Is it being just the author of the original foreign language, or also the author of the translation? Or here's another one where um, uh, I I would certainly urge this, although it might be controversial. There are um, in American copyright law, as you probably know, there's a large category of works called works made for hire, uh, where the actual creator of the work is not the author in the legal sense. So you have zero rights as a matter of copyright law. Well. In terms of copyright management information, should the term author mean only the statutory author, the one with legal rights, or should it mean author in the sense of the true creator of the work, right? the employee of the newspaper or, or the film company or, or whatever? Um, now, my personal view is that the Copyright Office, in implementing the statute, if we have the statute, should say author means not only the statutory author, but anybody who is the actual creator of the work, and all their names should go on, and everybody should get credit. But I'm not sure everybody would agree with me about that. Mm-hmm. Sure. 
I, I'm, uh, the normal process, you'll correct me, uh, is that the Copyright Office would hold hearings, public hearings, um, and invite notice and comment, meaning send in your letters, uh, before any regulation was adopted. And there would be a public notice in the Federal Register that you have the next 30 days to send in your comments or whatever. So that would definitely uh, be an opportunity. But, but just to add to it a little bit, I think by the terms of the treaty, if should you include the translator as an identified author of mm -hmm. the work, there would be an obligation under the treaty to protect the translator as any, uh, to protect the linkage of the translator's name with the work, just as the author's name, the original author's name would be protected, should that be included. But there is no obligation to include mm -hmm. either the original author or the translated author's translator's name with the work. But if it is included in the electronic rights information, then there would be an obligation to protect it. And there would also be a lot of practical incentives to want to include copyright management information because, among other things, it includes the terms and conditions. So at least the way we are interpreting this provision is, is you take it's a whole package. You can't say, I will communicate terms and conditions, but not the names of the authors. If you're going to do it, you've got to do it all. Now, this is a purely question of domestic law, right? The treaty is written in broad language, and then every one of the potentially 160 member sta states, potential member states that were there in Geneva, then goes home and decides whether or not to ratify this treaty, and in the process of ratifying the treaty, may need to enact domestic legislation. Are there any more, another question? Yeah. Oh, could we take a uh, lady in the back, and then we'll come back to you? Yes, ma'am. You mean the ones about electronic rights? The first, which? Exactly. I, 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 I agree with you. I think the, there is, uh, we have a, uh, a principle of freedom of contract, as w was said here, but the, I think this is a kind of empirical question. That is to say, whose rights are being protected, not uh, what's our system for protecting rights. In, in answer to this gentleman's question, of course, the treaty, and I don't think uh, any statute that's designed to implement the treaty, uh, takes the position that authors ought to be specially protected from assigning electronic rights to uh, content providers. It's not like uh, the droit moral or something like that where we think of poor artists who need to be protected against alienation of rights. There's nothing that, that I think requires any special 
way of, of, con of uh, conveying electronic rights. So I think you're asking an empirical question. The question for the conference is, this little meeting is, um, is it good for writers? It's not, it wasn't, is it good for content providers? Uh, well, it's, I, I go beyond that, and that is to say, maybe there is some thing out there which, uh, which I'd call content providers and service providers, which it is a little like the freedom of speech and, and who is increasingly benefiting from it. And again, I don't want to argue with this or take a position that this is a horrible thing necessarily, but it is true that, that, um, that increasingly authors are, are probably workers for hire. I don't know whether this is true or not. They probably increasingly will be. Well, I said that when I started. Uh, but. I think they are probably increasingly assigning their electronic no, rights. We are not assigning our okay. Rights. We are not Well, I, I guess I, I, I wish you had announced this to the, uh, I'm not the, the man in charge uh, of this. I'm just one of a thousand or more members and, and one of 6,000 members of the team. But I assure you that neither of these organizations uh, takes the position that you seem to assume that the publishers of magazines and newspapers and books have the right to just take the rights away from their authors. No, I, 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 I wanted to say, I did not say they have the right. I agree with you totally. I said that I, there's an important empirical question to be investigated, which is what is happening in terms of the way in which rights are allocated and wh which entities are holding these rights and are enforcing them. That's, that's the only statement I'm making. I'm telling you a lot of Okay. Leon, uh, I want to hear a new voice. going on. I don't think it's Tazini. I think it's still going on.
but that's what makes the difference because you specify. I see. Right, but. And so does any profession I'm not the only one Everybody. If, if everybody did it, it would be great. The problem, these cases, the Tazzini case and cases like that happen because there is ambiguity as to what the scope of the rights granted was. And then the question about are we going to be protective of authors or not, the, the question that a court in a case like Tazzini faces is when we can't tell because we don't have a contract or the words of the contract could be read either way, then we have to make a choice. We've got um, an intervening technological windfall the internet, or in earlier ages, it was other things. It was talking motion pictures, it was television, whatever. Something new happened that gave an all new valuable way to exploit the work. The contract doesn't tell us who gets the benefit. So on what principle are we going to decide who gets the benefit? Do we think that copyright is about authors and therefore we resolve the doubt in favor of the author and we put the burden on the, the co-contract of the newspaper to specify? Right? That's one way of of deciding this, or the other way of deciding this is to say, put the burden on the professional author who should know better. In fact, unfortunately, uh, court here in New York has been known to say that, uh, that we put the burden on the author to withhold the rights, and if the author doesn't specify that the author is withholding the rights, then the, bend, then the windfall of new technology goes to the newspaper, whoever, who's in a, quote, better position to exploit it anyway. Two different principles. Uh, and this has nothing to do with WIPO treaty, but it does have to do with how we think in ambiguity what the rule ought to be. And what you can do as a writer's organization to try to urge the rule in your direction. I, again, I'm, uh, but I, I, I would at least ask a question this way, whether the shift in the law has been away from protecting the author qua author towards the assignee of rights. That is so that, and, and I think it's not because of semantics that that, and I'm not sure it's true. I mean, maybe you disagree with that. Yeah, well, knowledge is power, right? Get the word out. I mean, really, I mean, this, I'm going to. Do you have to go? We should tell Jim. Jim, we should just. Oh, so we got to. We take one more. 
Well, we can have one more question. We have uh, one panelist has sketched a 9.30 flight, so it's yours. Uh, there have been a lot of discussions about that within various rights management and societies and collecting societies. But in terms of the treaty, no, that's, that's a far more, first off, it's not a legal issue per se, but rather a technological issue concerned with the implementation. It's not something that would be addressed in WIPO. If you're going to address international standards for formats for collecting that kind of information or something, that's something that would be taken up through the various international standardization organizations that are concerned with things like formats for computer data for information interchange and things of that sort of, uh, in fora of that general sort. I, I just want to add a note here again with a disclaimer, but the, the rights management information question, which again sounds terrific and updating, harmonization, correct, et cetera. There are a lot of privacy issues involved. You, you are now going to have every page you look at rights managed. There's, someone's going to know exactly which page was put up on your screen and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it, there are issues to be debated about the nature of society here in, in all these questions, even the ones that sound the most therapeutic and prophylactic. Well, I want to thank you all for coming, and I'm going to try a quick one-sentence consensus. I think there is a consensus on the panel that the new Internet Treaty is good for riders, and also a consensus that it would be bad for riders if the implementing legislation weren't passed. Well, I, thank you I all said, for coming. Well, I was it's, just it's consensus. Good for I, didn't, I didn't say it was unanimous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing's unanimous at Penn. <laughs>